The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Following the Evolution of Cardiac Myosin Inhibition, Remodeling Clinical Workflows to Realize the Greatest Benefit in OHCM and Beyond. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YMA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Melinda Seif from Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to my hometown, bright and early. And I'm Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania, not my hometown, but I'm happy to be here even though it's windy and a little bit cold. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming and hope all of us have fun, entertaining next hour learning about HCM and evolution of cardiac myosin inhibitors. What do we need to achieve here? Uh, how CMI's cardiac myosin inhibitors work? Who is an ideal candidate for being treated for, with a cardiac myosin inhibitor? How best to incorporate CMIs in the treatment of patients with obstructive HCM? And what's cooking, what's coming next in non-obstructive HCM and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Okay, let's understand what the gaps are in diagnosis and treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Again, I'm Melinda Syke. Uh, HCM is an equal opportunity offender. It affects both sexes, all race, and all ages in all places. Okay? Uh, this has no geographical preponderance or otherwise. The population prevalence is thought to be between 1 in 200 and 1 in 500. So just by that simple math, there are millions of patients worldwide with HCM, more than 20 million. There are clear disparities in treatment and in hospital mortality that have been documented, specified based on race, gender, insurance status, rural wealth versus city location, region of the country, size of the hospital, as well as hospital profit versus not-profit status. Female patients are diagnosed later than male patients. Median age at diagnosis is thought to be about 46 years. Heart failure and atrial fibrillation may not be present at diagnosis and they may evolve. So if this is a genetically mediated disease and the age of diagnosis is 46, that means not everybody turned a switch and developed hypertrophy at 45 years and 11 months. Most of them are underdiagnosed or diagnosed with something else. Race, black people, black patients have more heart failure symptoms and less often referred for symptomatic management. This is unfortunately not just specific related to HCM, but across the uh, spectrum of diseases as we unfortunately recognize. So at the very least, under diagnosis and under treatment are rampant in this disease. What happens to a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy heart? Uh, at the base is alteration of myocardial myocyte energetics and with a preponderance, uh, with a predisposition to developing congestive heart failure. It starts obviously subclinically. Uh, you may have a, what we call phenotype negative, uh, genotype positive status. Then as 
life occurs, puberty and beyond, uh, there's development of LV hypertrophy. The classic phenotype in HCM, as all of us know, is somebody with hypertrophy, uh, most commonly seen in the basal septum. And if you evaluate carefully, they have the phenotype of dynamic outflow tract obstruction, uh, LVOT obstruction, uh, obstructive cardiomyopathy, which is seen in about 70% patients, about 30% patients have the non-obstructive phenotype. The classic phenotype is seen in about 75% patients with an ejection fraction of more than 65%. And often these are stable. A well-managed patient in this classic phenotype by an experienced provider has a long-term outcome outlook similar to an age and gender match normal population. And there's the unlucky few, or uh, however you look at it, develop adverse remodeling. The prevalence is thought to be about 15%. They develop the HEF-PEF phenotype, and then there's a small, even smaller proportion that develops overt LV dysfunction. I dislike the term burnt-out HCM. Try telling a patient you have burnt-out something you know, people don't like burnt toast. So, you know, heart is a big, big deal. So you have developed a phenotype of overt LV dysfunction, which is about 5 to 10%, where your EF drops to less than 50%. How do you diagnose HCM? According to ACCHA guidelines, suspicions obviously are raised by symptoms, family history, an event, heart murmur, abnormal ECG, abnormal echocardiogram, and patients emerge in your practice any one of these ways. How do you evaluate these components? You take a three-generation family history. Physical examination is not overrated, should be done and done thoroughly. 12-lead ECG, echo, a well-done echo with appropriate provocative maneuvers, Exercise echo, uh, especially if there is no resting uh, or valsalva LVOT gradient that is uh, in the severe range greater than 50 millimeters of mercury. CMR, cardiac MRI, offers complementary value in addition to a comprehensive echo, especially if the echo is inconclusive. And genetic testing is something that helps guide uh, family screening as well as downstream counseling. Imaging is essential to the diagnosis of HCM. Make no mistake about it. Uh, diagnostic threshold for how, what is the definition of obstructive HCM, especially latent HCM, is anything greater than 30 millimeters mercury outflow tract gradient. It is often and very commonly associated with systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, otherwise known as SAM. The most recent ESC guidelines uh, have emphasized the role of multimodality imaging in diagnosis of HCM. If you suspect clinical, clinically suspect HCM, uh, multimodality imaging is used to assess phenotype, rule out phenocopies, stratify risk for progression of disease, as well as long-term follow-up. And, you know, uh, echocardiography is the mainstay first line uh, for LV function, hypertrophy, dilation, but CMR 
clearly offers complementary value. Uh, in addition to all the things that ECHO does, it can do tissue characterization, including T1 mapping, T2 mapping, T2 star, fibrosis mapping. Functional abnormalities uh, at peak stress can be ascertained by stress echocardiography. Not only it looks for obstruction, but what's cooking with the valve, what's cooking with the subvalvular apparatus, uh, papillary muscles, etc. More and more now, a lot of patients end up having coronary CT angiography, and we are finding an increased prevalence of uh, myocardial bridges and the downstream ramifications for that. Additionally, some of the multimodality imaging studies like the technetium pyrophosphate scan uh, to rule out amyloidosis is important because we are more, imaging is getting more ubiquitous. We are diagnosing a lot of elderly patients and sometimes these things go hand in hand. About 10% of an HCM population or an aortic stenosis population may have concomitant uh, amyloidosis. PET-CT, not always used, but occasionally could have a role in terms of if you suspect concomitant inflammation. So, complementary role of echo and CMR to measure LV thickness. Sometimes echo can be challenging. Uh, identifying the trabeculation on the RV side may be difficult. And especially at the fringes, low wall thickness, where you want to make a diagnosis of HCM. Is it 14 millimeters? Is it 15 millimeters? You're changing somebody's life. Is it 30 millimeters? Is it 27 millimeters? You are potentially going to offer them a defibrillator. It is important to be precise here, and CMR can provide incremental value in addition to what echocardiography can do. Uh, another important aspect of uh, HCM and imaging is the increasing focus on non-obstructive and apical variant HCM. Uh, as you can see the image on the bottom left, the apex is not well visualized on this echo. If you suspect apical HCM, it is imperative that you appro uh, obtain appropriate windows and give contrast to look for the apical variant, as well as the apical aneurysm. CMR has, it has much better uh, spatial resolution, and it does a much better job of identifying uh, the apical variant HCM, as well as the presence of apical aneurysm, and if there's a concomitant thrombus with it. This is a busy slide uh, for uh, reading at home, but using Various features on echo and CMR, including multi-parametric imaging on CMR, you can identify differentiate between HCM amyloidosis, febraze, hypertensive heart disease, as well as athlete's heart. Beyond wall thickness, you know, how is the T1 map? What is the degree of fibrosis? Is there a specific pattern of fibrosis? Do you have edema-weighted imaging on MRI? Do you have any specific pattern that may point towards concomitant myocarditis. Amyloidosis has a very different looking uh, LGE pattern compared to uh, HCM. Uh, sarcoidosis looks different. Athlete's heart is, has some features that it shares with HCM, but, but then at the end of the day, it's a normal physiologic condition. So multimodality imaging helps us uh, derive a firm diagnosis when it is in doubt.
Well, sometimes naturally, natural humans need artificial intelligence. And uh, now there's significant impetus and emergence of these AI systems that can detect anything and everything. But in the context of HCM, there is this uh, commercially available products now uh, which can utilize mobile apps to identify based on a cadre of ECGs, it can identify if your patient has an HCM pattern. This is the brave new frontier where you can send in millions of ECG and you can get a report back that 100 of these patients have HCM, go work them up. So that will perhaps help move the needle of making the diagnosis in the right direction. So VizAI just became the first FDA-approved HCM detection pro, uh, algorithm. So more to come in this space. Not just ECG, echo, CMR. No matter what, whatever you have, uh, you can apply artificial intelligence. It is my tremendous pleasure to introduce Dr. Owens who will level the playing field. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's jump in. We're going to talk about whether or not cardiac myosin inhibitors are a valuable option to fill unmet needs, um, particularly in obstructive HCM to start. So let's start with a case study. This is a man, William, age 58 years old. He has a long-standing history of dyspnea on exertion, which is a very common complaint, as you all know, in cardiology clinics and also some exertional chest pain. His past medical history includes asthma, hypertension, and acid reflux, and he is on albuterol, omeprazole, losartan, and metoprolol. So again, a pretty typical combo. And on your very important physical exam that Dr. Desai said we can't forget to do, you hear a harsh systolic ejection murmur at the left upper sternal border. And you assess his symptoms to be NYHA functional class three, meaning limitations with just slight exertion, going up the stairs, for example. Here's his ECG pictured on the right um, with left ventricular hypertrophy and the kind of classic strain pattern and repolarization changes. And here's his echo um, pictured on the top left is the uh, parasternal long axis view, and you can see asymmetric septal hypertrophy. You can see systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve up in the top left there. And then you can see the Doppler profile where we importantly assess the hemodynamics of the ventricle and see if there is any evidence of cavitary or outflow tract obstruction. And you can see the measurement there on the Doppler that his LVOT gradient is 57 millimeters of mercury. And as Dr. Desai said, really anything over 30 millimeters of mercury um, you know, tells us that there is some obstruction to the flow of blood. His MRI is pictured on the right, and we won't go into too much detail, but suffice it to say that there is a significant amount of late gadolinium enhancement that is present in sort of a patchy distribution. So what are the first-line treatments? Say this patient arrives to your office, has class three symptoms, dyspnea on exertion, chest discomfort. You've diagnosed him as obstructive HCM. The first thing that we do is really assess whether or not there is anything that he's taking or anything in his lifestyle that may be exacerbating LV outflow tract obstruction. And we think that major, most of his symptoms are on the result or as a result of uh, obstruction to the flow of blood. So the first thing to do is to talk to your patient about whether or not they're staying hydrated 
and whether they're on any offending agents. And this would be vasodilators that decrease afterload and by doing so can exacerbate LVOT obstruction or whether they're taking something like a diuretic, which is gonna decrease preload, and again, can exacerbate LV outflow tract obstruction. So in this patient, he's on Losartan, which potentially could be exacerbating his symptoms of outflow tract obstruction. He's also already on metoprolol, which is a non-vasodilating beta blocker, which would be the first line of treatment. So one thing that could be done in this patient is to peel back the Losartan, particularly if there's no other reason why he's taking it, um, that he needs it, and maybe up-titrate the beta blocker. In conjunction with asking him to stay well hydrated, we usually tell our patients at least 64 ounces of non-caffeinated beverages per day to make sure that his ventricle stays nice and full. Um, and if those things don't work, then you would think about adding on another therapy, um, or particularly with class three symptoms, whether or not he might be a candidate for septal reduction therapy. So those would be the first sort of attempts. Anything else you would do for this patient, Dr. Desai, on the first line? If to perhaps consider screening for sleep apnea, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of goes hand in hand with, and also be aggressive about looking for occult arrhythmias if not already done. Definitely. So Holter monitors would be indicated in patients like this every year or so to make sure you're not missing any arrhythmias. So from the natural history studies in SHARE, which is an international registry of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's now up to 10 or 12,000 patients. Um, this publication happened uh, a bit ago, two or three years ago, and it showed that about one in six patients with HCM developed severe heart failure symptoms during their time in this registry. And this is New York Heart Association functional class three, four symptoms. Now, importantly, this is not all heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. And we define that as an EF of less than 50% in HCM. We're not saying that all of those patients developed systolic dysfunction in HCM, but rather that they had um, congestive symptoms on the basis of outflow tract obstruction or a, more of a HFPEF phenotype in non-obstructive HCM. So these people can still have a preserved EF or severe outflow tract obstruction and get severe heart failure symptoms. So what advanced therapies do we use when patients are very symptomatic and you've already tried the first-line therapies, which are your beta blockers or calcium channel blockers and peeling back anything that's, that's uh, potentially harmful? Well, that's where we really start to think about whether or not you would use disopyramide, which, as we know, has potent negative inotropic effects but is an antiarrhythmic medicine, unfortunately has some supply chain issues and many side effects um, in terms of anticholinergic side effects. Um, and if not, or at the same time, we would often talk to patients about whether or not they want septal reduction therapy. And as you know, that comes in two flavors, at least here in the U.S. We typically use surgical septal myectomy, best done in expert hands at expert centers to get the best results, or alcohol septal ablation, where expertise is still very important, but maybe not as important as open heart surgery. And at the same time, we talk to patients about whether or not they might be a candidate for a cardiac myosin inhibitor. On the basis of the Valor trial, my colleague here was the first author, we know that Mavicampton was beneficial in those patients, all of whom were considering septal reduction therapy, greater than 90% of whom were New York Heart Association functional class three. They benefited from Mavicampton and were able to delay or prevent the need for septal reduction therapy. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in the slides to come. 
So about one in five patients in the SHARE registry required septal reduction therapy during their tenure in the registry. So again, not an insignificant number of patients who in their lifetime will be facing a decision of whether or not they need gradient reduction therapy. So where do the cardiac myosins fit in? These are small molecules that are being evaluated in clinical trials. There is one currently FDA-approved agent, that is Mavicamptin, which is the first-in-class agent. The way these drugs work is by modulating contractility. And so that's a very important kind of basic premise to think about as you uh, work with these drugs and start to prescribe them. They modulate contractility. And we're taking hearts that are hypercontractile. They're beating too forcefully. And we're bringing them down a notch to bring beat more normally. Um, by mechanism of action, if you get too much of one of these medicines, there's a chance that your ventricle will become hypocontractile. So that is systolic dysfunction. It can be asymptomatic or symptomatic, but that's really what you're watching for is you modulate the contractility in these patients. You're trying to get them to the sweet spot. Um, Afikamtin is a next-in-class cardiac myosin inhibitor. It's still in clinical trials. It is not yet FDA-approved. It has a bit shorter half-life than Mavicamtin. So these drugs, this class of agents, are the first that have been developed to target the underlying pathophysiology of HCM. So as opposed to beta blockers, calcium blockers, disapyramide, which as you all know were developed for other reasons, this is the first class of medicines that targets the problem with HCM. So let's look a little bit at the long-term effects of Mavicamtin. As you all know, Explorer was the pivotal phase three trial that led to the FDA approval of Mavicamtin. And all of those patients from that parent study were offered the opportunity to go into the long-term extension trial, which is open-label open use of Mavicamtin for obstructive patients who were symptomatic. And you can see at week 48, at week 108, and week 120 at the bottom, that we saw a significant improvement that was sustained um, in terms of New York Heart Association functional class improvement. Now, there is a drop-off of numbers over time. Not all of the patients have reached that week 120. We have several patients at our site who have, um, and they have sustained durable effect in their functional class improvement, which is really nice to see in this patient population with 70-some percent of patients um, getting improvement by either one or two classes. This is a study that was recently published, and this was kind of an explorer-type study, but performed in the Chinese obstructive HCM population. This was looking at Mavicamptin versus placebo in 81 patients, and there were two notable changes here. One is that Mavicamptin was started at 2.5 milligrams. Here in the U.S., we typically start patients at 5 milligrams, um, and that is what the recommended starting dose is and the dose that was used in most of the uh, the trials to date. This one used 2.5 milligrams. And the reason is the lower body weight um, in the Asian population and a higher prevalence of the poor metabolizer phenotype. And for that reason, a lower dose was started. Um, and a peak VO2 was not part of the study. They were looking at gradients and functional class. And you can see pictured here, placebo is in yellow 
and the Mavic Hampton line is in blue. And what you can see with resting in Valsalva gradients is a very substantial drop in gradients. And again, these patients were sick to start. The peak gradient Valsalva was above 100, uh, resting gradients in the high 70s, almost 80. So these were patients with severe obstruction. And their functional classes, you can see on the right, improved significantly in the Mavic Hampton group with 40-some percent of patients um, class one at the end of 30 weeks. Now, interestingly, the dose was titrated, and so you can see at the bottom that the typical dose that patients were on by the end of study were similar to what we see here in the U.S., with most patients being between 5 and 10 milligrams of Mavic Hampton. No patients reported an LVEF less than 50%, and no other major uh, toxicity or new side effect was noted. So let's switch over to Afikampton and the latest data from Afikampton. Um, these results were published um, within the last year. This is the Redwood HCM Phase II dose-finding study. And there were three cohorts. Cohort 1 and 2 were placebo-controlled dose-finding. And you can see by the bars in Cohort 2 that at the higher dose of Afikampton, we saw a similar improvement in NYHA functional class with about 65% of patients um, reporting an improvement. Cohort three, I'll call your attention to, this was an open label cohort. These were patients who were very refractory to medical therapy, all of whom were on disulpyramide in addition to an AV nodal blocker. So we added CMI to that already dual negative inotropy. Um, there were no major side effects. This was mainly done for safety. And that 85% NYHA functional class does reflect, I think, in part, an, an open-label design. Um, when you look at the change in left ventricular ejection fraction for the cohorts versus placebo, again, by mechanism of action, we expect to see a small decline in ejection fraction. In aggregate, they remained above uh, 50% in the normal range. Um, so let's talk a little about the long-term effects um, in Valor and what we saw in those patients who were all eligible for surgical intervention. These were patients who were actively considering SRT, um, class 3 patients. At the beginning, I'll just remind you of the trial design. We were looking at the primary outcome of proportion of patients who either proceeded with septal reduction therapy or remained guideline eligible by gradients and symptoms. And so at the beginning, 100% of the patients were eligible um, for SRT. And then over time, and we're, I'll remind you, this was a crossover trial. <laughs> so the original Mavic Hampton group on the left, after 16 weeks, the primary endpoint, um, down to 18% of patients from 100 who were still guideline eligible or underwent SRT. And by um, week 56, down to 9%. Now the crossover group, which is on the right, again, started on placebo. So it's um, 16 weeks, 77% still eligible. And then you can see a marked decline when they got the active treatment down to 14% and now around 19%. So again, showing durable response to Mavic Hampton and the ability to delay or even prevent, we need longer term data to say that, but certainly to say delay the need for SRT. And the gradient reduction you can see here was substantial, starts at week four and then progresses down. Um, and you can see by week 16 in the Mavic Hampton group in blue, and then the placebo to Mavic Hampton group in orange. And they cross once the placebo group gets access to the drug after week 16, and a durable response, a significant response with many patients with gradients. You know, you can see there, um, 
at rest under 20 millimeters of mercury, which is our definition for saying you have obstructive disease. NYHA class, this is pretty dramatic, with 93% of patients reporting um, improved NYHA functional class um, by 56 weeks. Always important to look at safety endpoints. So this is a novel class of medications. Our eyes are tuned to the left ventricular ejection fraction. And in the Mavacampton group, we saw that there was permanent discontinuation in three patients. This was due to two of them having an LVEF less than 30. If that occurs, by protocol definition, it was a permanent discontinuation. And one patient who had two consecutive LVEFs less than 50, despite the lowest dose, and that person also permanently discontinued. There were um, a total of 12 patients who had an EF of less than 50. That uh, can be a transient drop in most patients. So 9 out of 12, 75% of patients who had a drop in ejection fraction to less than 50 were asymptomatic and able to resume Mavicampton. And I would say this is the more typical pattern, that you pick it up on a screening echo. The echoes are done for safety precisely for this reason. You get an ejection fraction of 48%. Your patient feels fine. They have no idea that they, this was happening. Um, you temporarily stop the drug. You bring them back in four weeks. The ejection fraction climbs above 50, and you restart the drug. That's a pretty typical pattern when this occurs. Um, the more rare frequency of occurrence, but very important, is a patient who has a clinical event. And often this can happen in the setting of atrial fibrillation, particularly rapid atrial fibrillation, um, where you'll get a drop in ejection fraction that can be symptomatic. And again, the right answer is to temporarily stop the drug. These are reversible cardiac-specific drugs. The ejection fraction comes back up, and then you're able to resume at a lower dose. So Afikampton um, has completed enrollment of its phase three pivotal trial. That is the Sequoia HCM trial. And we would expect a readout of that trial sometime in 2024. The baseline characteristics were presented actually by Dr. Marin here um, at the HCMS meeting uh, on Friday. And this was a very international cohort. And it also <clears throat> included patients from China, about 17% of patients from China. Mean age was right around 60, 40% female. The NYHA breakdown here is more similar to the Explorer group than the Valor group, with 76% of patients being class 2. Um, a host of background therapies. The percent of patients on beta blockers was uh, capped in this study. So fewer patients on beta blockers than were in Explorer. And you can see the mean peak VO2, these were limited patients at 18.5. And a KCCQ score that's a little bit higher than what we saw in Explorer at 74. This may represent geographic um, diversity in KCCQ in the way patients report their symptoms. <laughs> we found in the excuse me Asian population that patients are less likely to complain that they're feeling poorly. This is the Maple HCM study design. Phase three study. This will compare head-to-head afikansin versus metoprolol. So this will be a very exciting study to see the results of. The first time we're testing standard of care versus afikansin. I'm going to have to have Dr. Desai take over for me. This is the HFSA preview um, to look for a few abstracts looking at echo in the real world, and also looking at racial ethnic diversity in the real-world treatment of patients with Mavicampton. All right, just on time. Woo. Perfect timing. So all these Kaplan-Meier curves and all these fancy data, 
how do you integrate CMIs into the clinical workflow? This is a team sport. HCM is a team sport. It requires multiple members of the HCM care team, uh, the, the cardiologist, advanced heart failure team in some cases, structural intervention, cardiac surgeon, primary care, research team. Now, you know, every HCM patient is a potential for some form of research discussion. Wellness factors, we have to talk about lifestyle, nutrition, well-being. Understanding of genetics and advanced cardiac imaging is crucial as part of your team. So this involves, because a lot of this is shared decision-making, right? So HCM cardiologists, primary cardiologists, EP, genetics, et cetera. Patients are savvy. Patients know a lot more than you think they do. And now, more than ever, they're asking a lot of poignant, pointed questions. And they expect to work collaboratively with you as the healthcare provider. And they will talk to each other on Facebook Live and Instagram Live and whatever Gram Live that is out there. So they do talk. What do the ESC guidelines say about treating HCM? Uh, if you have a symptomatic patient with NYHA class two, or th uh, two to four, if you have AFib, uh, that's, you know, you need to get ahead of it. AFib is a bad actor here. It will mess up your best day at the office. Rate rhythm control, anticoagulation. There is no Chad's VAS score here. If you have documented AFib, you go on anticoagulation. Cannot underscore the importance of that. If you are still symptomatic, and if you have LVOT obstruction that is more than 50, then you go the pathway of LVOT management. Uh, if there is no uh, LVOT gradient, the key here is a good quality echo, okay? Not using the full extent of provocation to designate somebody as non-obstructive is inappropriate in 2023. Having said that you, you convince it's not it's non-obstructive, then what's your EF? More than 50%, then you talk about standard therapy. If it is less than 50%, then heart failure guideline directive medical therapy, beta blockers, ACRB, MRA, things I cannot even pronounce this early, SGLT2, low-dose diuretics. And then beyond that, if the writing's on the wall, then mechanical support devices, cardiac transplantation. But... A lot of these drugs are not disease-modifying therapies, okay? How do you treat? So to be continued, let's continue. If you have uh, gradients greater than 50 millimeters of mercury and you are symptomatic, first line is beta blockers. If you still remain symptomatic, the ESC guidelines talk about verapamil or diltiazem as uh, class one. If still symptomatic, then Daiso or Mavacamptin. Mavacamptin got a class 2A indication. If still symptomatic, proceed to septal reduction therapy. I'm going to tell you one thing. The only prospective randomized controlled trial data in this space exists in Mavacamptin. Everything else is, they get a class 1 indication, but level of evidence is C, which is, <laughs> expert consensus opinion, observational studies, or retrospective data. So these are quote-unquote guidelines, okay? Uh, they are not Rosetta Stone. 
my opinion. None of them are disease-modifying therapies. So where do cardiac myosin inhibitors fit in the management of obstructive HCM? As Dr. Owens has mentioned, uh, treat comorbidities, remove the bad triggers. If you avoid, this is a big one, right? Avoid vasodilators and diuretics. Move to beta blockers. Move to verapamil, but there is an argument based on the explore data that can be made to move to mavacamptan after beta blockers. If they still remain symptomatic, there's conversation about using disopyramide or based on the Valor data, uh, mavacamptan. But as Dr. Owens mentioned, disopyramide has a lot of side effects. It's like a mother-in-law. It takes a while to get used to, and even then, you may or may not get used to it, okay? Uh, I said it. <laughs> if that doesn't work, then you proceed to SRT. If you are a surgical candidate, then you proceed to surgical myectomy. But you need a center of excellence with an experienced surgeon to be able to do that. If you have a good surgeon, mortality 0%. If you have an inexperienced surgeon, your mortality can be up to 16%. Published data. Alcohol septal ablation in patients who are not typically candidates for surgical myectomy. So this is basically the schemata that is proposed uh, right now. And this obviously will evolve as time goes on. If you are not very symptomatic and well-controlled, then reevaluate in one or two years. What do you know, need to know about Mavacamptan and the REMS program? REMS is what? Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. This was put uh, in place based on the strong recommendation by the FDA. It is fundamentally recognizing that reduced ejection fraction may occur, reversible, sometimes irreversible. So LVEF monitoring is needed. Don't initiate if it is less than 55%. Interrupt if it drops to under 50%. Drug-drug interactions can increase the risk of heart failure because of the CYP450 inhibitor inducers, uh, the CYP uh, cytochrome uh, pathway. So it is important to check the medication list. Thank God for electronic medical records, so they flag us uh, if we are trying to do something stupid in our practice. So it is good, but no new prescription or non-prescription medications should be started without discussing uh, and checking the DDIs. And all of us need to be on the same page. This is a team sport. I tell the patients it's about rights and responsibilities. You have rights, but you also have responsibilities. All of us are in this together. It requires ongoing echo to monitor structure and function prior to initiation for eight, 12 weeks four weeks after every dose increase, and every three months. So if you are a business person in your medical practice, this is a good echo growth opportunity. But be it as it may, uh, this is something mandated by the FDA, and it is required to do. Uh, either, fundamentally, Mavacamptan has substantial net benefits uh, in obstructive HCM patients, including improving survival and quality of life. But the imaging burden is something that also always should be discussed. What is the real-world data coming at AHA? 
Dr. Anjali Owens is going to talk about, uh, I think you will be, right? Uh, Dr. Noshin Reza okay, will Dr. talk Reza. about it for us. Or your team <laughs> will talk about single-center experience with using Mavacamptan. Treatment adherence to Mavacamptan in the U.S., adherence are, uh, tra- study, and multidisciplinary care management of patients with Mavacamptan for obstructive HCM. So look out for these. And now I toss it back to you, doctor. Thank you. I'm going on the record to say that my mother-in-law's more like Mavacamptan, effective, durable response, <laughs> not disappearment. All right. Mine too. <laughs> Be- <laughs> beyond I ob- think. <laughs> <laughs> beyond obstructive HCM, what's, what's next for this class of medication? So I'll call your attention more towards the uh, middle to bottom of the slide where we have the Odyssey HCM phase three trial for non-obstructive HCM. This is Mavicantin versus placebo. We talked a little bit about maple HCM. That's another phase three trial. That's obstructive symptomatic HCM with afficamptin. Um, and finally, the Acacia HCM trial, another phase three non-obstructive HCM symptomatic patients. This is afficamptin versus placebo. So we have our work cut out for us to enroll these uh, several hundred patient trials in the next year or two. So here's a patient of mine, Sophie, age 62, family history of HCM. She's had AFib that's been ablated. Her maximal septal wall thickness is 2.6 centimeters. She has a VUS and NYBPC3, not a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant, but a positive family history. Class 2, 3 symptoms. She's on a calcium channel blocker, a diuretic PRN. She's on anticoagulation, as, as Dr. Desai said, for her AFib. Here's her ECG which shows evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, some nonspecific changes there. And here is her echo. This is hopefully going to play. And you can see asymmetric septal hypertrophy that extends down into the apex. Her NT-PRO was 1,300 and change. No gradient at rest or with Valsalva. Her peak gradient was 5. And she has evidence of elevated filling pressures, E over E prime, that's elevated. So what do we have in the guidelines, 2020 guidelines, for patients with non-obstructive HCM who are symptomatic and their LVEF is greater than 50? Not a whole lot. It's sort of the same host of characters, beta blockers, calcium blockers. Give it a try. See if they feel better. Sometimes patients feel worse if you do too much AV nodal blocker. Um, for a patient with non-obstructive HCM, you cause chronotropic incompetence, and actually their exercise tolerance can diminish. Um, if they have congestive symptoms, you can try diuretics. Some people use loop diuretics. Others use um, an MRA, um, but still not a whole lot of, of benefit. This is a tough population to treat. So our, our patient decided to go into the Maverick study, which was the phase two study, Mavicamptin and non-obstructive uh, patients who are symptomatic. And here's her heart after Mavicamptin, after four years into the long-term extension. And you can see her systolic function is not appreciably changed. It's still normal. Um, she still has her septal hypertrophy um, going down into the apex as well. Um, and her gradients remain low. But what was remarkable were the changes that she had in diastolic function and her symptoms. So she went from class 2, 3 to class 1. You can see her NT-PRO BNP came way down, from 1,300 down to 200, and an improvement in non-invasive measures of filling pressures with E over E prime improved. So this was really um, dramatic for this patient and in several others who we follow. This is another thing that I'm starting to notice and I'd be curious if you are um, as well, Melinda, is changes in EKGs that are pretty dramatic. This is four years later, um, pre-Mavicampton, you can see with voltage coming off the page. 
and our voltage has improved considerably on Mavic Hampton. I mean, I have to say, yes, we have seen that. And, you know, a naturally dumb cardiologist like me can evaluate. You don't need an artificially intelligent machine to look at that. The changes are pretty dramatic when you see them. That's right. And this is long-term data that I presented on Friday at the HCMS meeting. This was the cohort of patients from the parent Maverick study, which is that phase two non-obstructive HCM dose finding study, Mavic Hampton. These are patients that are cohorted and now into the long-term extension study, so open label. And this shows their improvement in NT Pro BNP over the time frame up to 120 weeks. And what we saw was a dose dependent. So the way that Maverick worked and the LTE of Maverick works is that <clears throat> patients were randomized to two different target concentrations. So 200 nanograms per mil or 500 nanograms per mil. So we did see a dose dependent decrease, but overall the cohort dropped their NT Pro BNP by about 50%, which again is remarkable in this population. You can see the LVEF graph on the right. In aggregate, these patients stayed above 50, but there were individuals who dropped their left ventricular ejection fractions to less than 50% and required temporary holds of the Mavic Hampton. And again, in this dose-finding study, we did find that that happened in a significant proportion of patients. Um, and that uh, dosing strategy informed our dosing strategy in the Odyssey Phase three trial. So this is Odyssey HCM. This is going to be the uh, non-obstructive large trial uh, for Mavic Hampton versus placebo. Inclusion criteria is listed there, but basically symptomatic and not obstructive. We need 420 patients, and we're up to 110? We are more than 25% enrolled. Good. Yes. So we've got a, more we've than 110. Got a ways to go. Primary endpoints for this study, KCCQ and peak VO2. So interesting endpoints. This is a much-needed study, and we're looking forward to getting it fully enrolled. Um, the next study I want to just touch on, because we are here at HFSA, is looking at Mavic Hampton in a group of patients with HEFPEF. This is a phase 2A study. It is a dose-finding kind of exploratory study. You can see the inclusion criteria, which is kind of like a little bit of hypertrophy, not quite to the extent of HCM, but your heart kind of looks a little thick, um, as opposed to the other HEFPEF patients, which might have no concentric hypertrophy. Um, these are kind of patients on the spectrum of HEFPEF who may be HCM-like, large left atrium, some concentric hypertrophy, elevated NT-PRO. Um, and this uh, study is still enrolling. As you might imagine, it's kind of a hard group to locate. But if you're a heart failure doctor, you have a couple of these patients, might consider it. Um, this is the Redwood cohort four that I have pictured here. These were data presented by Dr. Um, uh, Masri. And these are the open label cohort of patients with non-obstructive HCM uh, treated with afikantin. <clears throat> Preliminary results show improvement in biomarkers and improvement in NYHA functional class. These were patients who were allowed to stay on their standard of care Afikemptin added on top. On the basis of this cohort four study, we are now also enrolling for the Acacia HCM study. This is going to be the large phase three study, non-obstructive HCM for Afikemptin. So we have two trials, both of them 400-person trials with non-obstructive HCM to enroll in the next couple of years. There are other novel treatments for HCM that are underway, including the very first gene therapy trial. This is for patients with myosin-binding protein C-associated HCM. And I think we'll see novel applications of other established therapies coming in the next couple of years. So 
We took a population, non-obstructive symptomatic HCM, with no options, and now there's quite a few options. And, and yes, the first patient uh, in the gene therapy trial got dosed a few days ago and is hanging out two miles east of here. Congratulations, Dr. Desai. <laughs> a major feat. <clears throat> so key takeaways, and hopefully we have time for a few questions. Multimodality imaging is recommended to diagnose and stage HCM. Most patients end up with echo and MRI at least. Multidisciplinary management is really essential for patients with HCM. And adequate imaging capacity in your echo lab is needed to follow patients treated with Mavicampton. Come to Dr. Desai, he'll give you a business plan. We know that MAVA has sustained effectiveness through 120 weeks in the obstructed population, including a reduction in the need to pursue SRT over 56 weeks of data. A second CMI next in class agent, Afficampton, is currently in clinical trials, not yet FDA approved for both obstructive and non-obstructive HCM. And we'll see if these agents have uh, applicability to other disease phenotypes. So let's stop here and take some questions. Thank you. Uh, so there are some pre-registered questions. Is Mavacampton exclusively used to treat patients with MY, MYH7 pathogenic mutation or applicable to all HCM patients? I'll answer that when I'm giving you the imaging one next. So um, no, we find that there is benefit in patients who do not have genetic HCM. So you don't have to have a pathogenic or likely pathogenic sarcomeric variant in order to benefit from Mavicampton. Um, there was a small portion of patients in Explorer who did have disease-causing variants, and we'll see that data presented, I believe, at AHA by Dr. Ho. Um, but we saw significant benefit even in those who do not have genetic HCM. It's the pathophysiology of obstruction that leads to the benefit in many cases. So the next question, septal thickness, how is it measured by echo, leading edge to leading edge or inner edge for HCM? Neither. So I would strongly recommend uh, look, reading the uh, ASC guidelines or EACVI guidelines. And most recently there was a position paper written by ASC, full disclosure, I was a co-author, which goes through details of imaging in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The important thing here are the two, three things that we have to consider. Where exactly you measure according to the ASC convention, number one, and number two, recognizing that you're not tangential, you are perpendicular to the plane of the septum, number two, and number three, on the right side, uh, in the septum, it is important to recognize where the right side begins because there's a lot of trabeculations more often seen on the right side. So often the sonographers will uh, go the full extent. So you have to be able to recognize uh, the, the, the trabeculations on the right side. So these are some of the important things that need to be taken into account. The leading edge to leading edge or the uh, is, is more applicable to aortic aneurysm measurements, definitely not in this case. There's a little bit more science and finesse involved here. So will these myosin inhibitors stop progression of the disease, the disarray of the myocardium, and hopefully long-term outcomes? 
We don't know yet. So we need long-term data in order to assess that. We do have some longer-term data showing that there is remodeling occurring. And by that, I mean by cardiac MRI. We have data that there is a decrease in left ventricular mass index, decrease in septal wall thickness, decrease in left atrial volume index. So all of those signs tell us the heart looks more compensated. It looks like it's, um, you know, improving in those imaging parameters. But we don't yet have long, long-term data to show whether or not this is going to be um, altering disease progression in the trajectory of the disease. Yeah. So, and, you know, time will tell. Look, you saw the, the time graph by Dr. Owens. The action started in 2018 or so. We are barely five years into this. So, you know, Rome was not built in a day, neither was Cleveland. So change in severe MR due to SAM in patients with obstructive HCM treated with Mavacampton. The answer is yes. If you relieve out the biggest thing you see from an imaging perspective is SAM mitral valve does not close, so there's a posteriorly directed jet of MR. So if you reduce uh, obstruction, reduce SAM, MR does go down. And there are a couple of uh, imaging publications, one from the Valor study by Kremer uh, and colleagues, and the other one uh, from the Explore by uh, Hegde and colleagues, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which demonstrated that these uh, parameters improve uh, with the treatment of Mavacampton. Here's a good one for you, Melin. Would you consider Mavacampton in an asymptomatic patient who has a gradient close to 90? How do you assess that? So somebody with a gradient of 90 who comes into me and tells me they are asymptomatic, for me, that's a starting point for negotiation. I'm going to tell them to prove it to me. View published data. 428 quote-unquote asymptomatic patients come to Cleveland Clinic for, you know, for evaluation of HCM, obstructive HCM. Prove it to me. Put them on a treadmill. About 50% of them do not achieve what is expected a gender-matched exercise capacity. So a lot, yes, I'm totally asymptomatic, except I don't go to visit my daughter who lives on the third floor uh, because the elevator is broken, you know. Uh, Yeah, I just... I mean, I'm just a grandma now. Why do I need to climb that hill, you know? So, yes, I'm not symptomatic because I don't no longer climb the hill. So, you know, it is important for me to believe the patient is asymptomatic. They have to prove it. And if that's the case, then, you know, all glory to them. I mean, you know, let's continue with current standard of care. We ha- Look, you know, CMI or newer therapy, first of all, that has only been around for as long as it has been, as short as it has been, with the, the price tag, the REMS program, et cetera. I don't want to put a truly asymptomatic person through any therapy beyond uh, basic lifestyle measurements, uh, lifestyle adjustments. But most people don't realize that they are symptomatic. I think that's the punchline here. Absolutely. We see that time and time again. Great. Thank you all for your attention. Enjoy the rest of the day. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit 
at peerview.com forward slash YMA860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.